The presenting sponsors of the Elevate podcast are the Expert Institute, Hype Legal, and Smart Advocate. The Expert Institute is the place that all top trial lawyers need to go to find the best experts to work on and to help you present your case. Expert Institute streamlines that process by providing staff who will go out, do an extensive search for the right expert, line up multiple candidates with their CVs, their past testifying history, well-vetted, who have a particular interest, curiosity, and expertise in the specialization that you need for the case, and will coordinate the meetings with all of those folks so that all you have to do is tell them what you're looking for and then get on the Zoom or get on the phone and talk to the expert candidates and select the best one for your case. It's a great process. It saves me and my staff a ton of time. And most importantly, the net result is we find better experts than we would have found without their assistance. And that makes a huge difference in the bottom line for our cases. If you're interested in speaking with them, go to theexpertinstitute.com and check them out today. Our show is also sponsored by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is a full uh, practice management software system for your firm. It allows you to manage all of your cases, whether you have a complex practice with hundreds or thousands of clients and cases, or just a few cases with uh, lots of documents or anything in between. It's a robust, customizable uh, solution. It's cost-effective and it's worked great in our practice. I think I mentioned on an earlier show, my paralegal thanked me for choosing that product. And when the paralegal thanks you for something, uh, it really means a lot because they're the ones who interface with that on a daily basis. And Hype Legal, our friends Micah and Tyler, who were at a firm called High Impact, where they helped to build out that successful trial animation uh, company over a long period of time, getting to know the needs, uh, particular idiosyncrasies, needs of trial lawyers, what we need to succeed, how our practices work. And they took all of that experience and their expertise with aesthetics and graphics and digital marketing and started their own firm called Hype Legal, where they now offer that service on a niche basis to some of the top trial law firms in the country. You should check them out at hypelegal.com. This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Ravi Pudi. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Rahul Ravi Pudi. And I'm Ben Gideon. Ben, how are you? I'm doing well. So uh, I understand you're in Vegas for the Trial Lawyer University. My associate, uh, we sent her out there to learn something from you, and she attended your uh, speech this morning and said it was awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, this has really been a good event. After the speech, she went up to try to say hello, but you were apparently mobbed by the crowd. Uh, so she wasn't able to say hi, but hopefully she'll be able to find you later. I'm going to find her today. It'll be great. Um, the nice thing about being here, too, is that at Trial Lawyers University, and we had Dan Ambrose as a, as a guest, um, he's done a great job of assembling really some amazing talent. Um, and I was talking to Ben before we even started. Ben, you've got a You've got to be part of this cast uh, as soon as possible. 
but um, I got a chance to flag down Sean Claggett. And um, Sean, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, and just before we jump into that, Rohu, I almost forgot, but congratulations are in order. Panish, Shea, and Boyle is now Panish, Shea, Boyle, and Ravipudi. So congrats. That's that's really big. And I'm so proud of you, man. It's just fantastic. Oh, thank you. Pretty soon it'll be the law offices of Rahul Ravipudi and every you know, Brian and everyone else will have to come to work for you. But <laughs> just want to make sure everybody knows that was said in jest. So uh sean so sean uh is the um founding partner and man i I believe you're the founding partner of claggett and sykes uh you've gotten amazing verdicts you're an amazing teacher and a stalwart here in the las vegas community and what we wanted to do is get to know you a little bit better sean and equally as important I think both Ben and I are so interested in your utilization of big data in preparing for trials and want to learn a little bit about that. So just kind of starting at the beginning, how did you get to where you are? Well, I, uh, you know, in law school, I didn't, I didn't grow up with a bunch of lawyers in the family or anything like that. There were no lawyers. In fact, my dad was the only one in his family that ever went to college. Uh, And even to this, to today, on my dad's side of the family, his sons are the only ones that went to college. And where, where are you from? Originally, I am from Twin Falls, Idaho, then moved to Boise. And then in 1986, my uh, family moved to Las Vegas because the economy had collapsed in the 80s. My dad was in the construction industry and there was no work in Idaho. So Vegas was kind of immune, at least back then, to what was going on other places. And so it was a great place to come where construction was still happening. So... I moved here as a kid. I was about 10 and was definitely going to leave. I hated Las Vegas uh, more than either of my brothers. I'm the middle of three kids, so I'm the only one left. Uh, my little brother lives in North Carolina. My older brother lives in Tucson, and I love Vegas. So it grows on you, and it's a wonderful city. But I end up going to school, and I was like, oh, maybe I'm going to go to law school. And I, I was working at Wells Fargo for years before law school and I got to see everybody's bank accounts. And I'm like, that industry doesn't make any money. Doctors make good money, but I'm not smart enough to be a doctor. Lawyers, they make a lot of money. And I'm like, I can do that. And so I was like, I would go be a lawyer. Uh, so went to law school at uh, the wonderful uh, UNLV Boys School of Law, which was uh, very new at the time. My first two years of law school, I went to school in a elementary, an old elementary school that was repurposed for the law school. They did not repurpose the bathrooms. They were still little children's bathrooms. It was hysterical. Uh, so, uh, but went to, graduated um, in 2003, worked for a, I, my first job was working for an insurance defense firm. And I told my wife, like I was doing that. I'm like, if this is what being a lawyer is, I'm out. I'm not doing this. This is miserable. How did you get into the practice of being an insurance defense lawyer? Well, it was just a job. I didn't know. Even in law school, they don't. T- the, 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 I teach law practice management at the law school, and I have a huge, like, I'm very proud of my school for letting me teach this course because I actually teach the kids what different types of practice really look like because nobody tells you that in law school, right? It's like, oh, there's this firm with four names and they're hiring. Like, oh, sweet. You know, all I wanted was a job. I, I didn't have a car. I got dropped off every day at law school by my wife. 
uh, I brought my lunch. Sometimes I brought dinner. Um, I, I, I was broke. I mean, beyond broke. I mean, we were totally broke. And so this place, they were going to pay me 18 bucks an hour, bro. And I mean, let me tell you something. $18 an hour is so much money when you have no money. Um, and I was ecstatic. And I mean, it was a nice office in Summerlin, which is a fancy area here in Vegas. And I was like, sheesh, I've made, had my own office. And for the next 13 months, I summarized depositions of construction defect litigation cases that were never going to go to trial. And I hated every, it took me about three weeks to realize this is a really bad job. But the people were cool. I mean, I, I met some really great people there, um, which made it uh, tolerable. Um, I'm still friends with three of the attorneys that were mentoring me. Or not, there wasn't really any real mentoring going on, let's be honest, but they were at least my friends and they were, they were kind to me. Uh, so they're all doing plaintiff work today, by the way. So, uh, but yeah, so after 13 months, I was so like, and what happened is they had a miserable managing partner come from San Diego and ruined the entire culture of the firm. I mean, destroyed it. And I'm like, this is awful. Um, so I applied for a one week job for a high profile criminal defense attorney. Uh, and he goes, well, when can you start? I'm like, I'll start tomorrow. And he's like, okay, I thought you had a job. I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, it's fine. I went back, packed up my box, and I walked out, and she, the, the managing partner sees me. She goes, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, yeah, I quit. She's like, you're burning bridges. I'm like, I told her, I'm like, I'm throwing kerosene on this bridge. I'm never coming back. I promise. <laughs> I, I, I knew at that moment. I'm like, I, will, I promise you. And the greatest satisfaction I've had is having a case against her and having her pay me more money in a case and my fees were more than I know she'll make in years. And she had to like watch this kid who literally was a prick and walked out on her 20 years ago, you know? So it was, so that's how I, and I did criminal defense for uh, two and a half years with the best criminal defense attorneys in the state. I mean, I don't know if you guys know Dominic Gentile or Michael Cristalli, but I mean, Dominic is, to this day, I think the smartest attorney I've ever met when it comes to evidence, he's just insanely smart. And to this day, I can pick up the phone and call him and he'll answer evidentiary questions. And it's kind of funny now because now he calls me when he's got focus group questions. Uh, but he's, uh, he's, they're, they're just great people. But I had a kid, my son, and I didn't want to be in that lifestyle. It was pretty fast lifestyle. We were representing a lot of uh, prostitutes, strip clubs, uh, pimps. That was kind of the the bread and butter of the practice. And it, look, as a young attorney, gosh, that's pretty fun. Uh, and I was in court every day. I mean, we were having preliminary hearings or arraignments, seven thirty in the morning every morning. And I was so I'd basically be at court from seven thirty to about ten thirty eleven, and then go back to the office and draft. And I said, this is, this is what being a lawyer is. This is awesome. And I loved it. And I was doing trials as a young attorney. Um, and my boss didn't do civil work, but he took civil cases. And I went and did a trial. And my first civil trial was in federal court, a patent infringement case against 3M as a first-year attorney. And we oh. won. 
That's a good story, by the way. It's one of That's the greatest, pretty... greatest offers I ever got uh, in my life from an attorney. You guys want to hear that one? Yeah. I'm interested in that. <laughs> so I go, I don't know anything about patent law. My boss doesn't know anything about what patent. was the product or the, yeah, the it product. Was, uh, yeah. So it was, uh, our client had invented a, uh, like an L bracket adhesive that would adhere fil- thick film to windows. And so originally he created it for the military. And so what they the military is having all these problems with windows, bombs, shattering windows and the shrapnel, the glass hurting people. They're trying to get a fix for that. And this guy literally, I don't know how the hell he figured it out, but he created this like adhesive L bracket that they took it over to Quantico and we're testing it. It would blow the entire window frame out, but not a, the glass would all stay in place. And so it was a really, really good product, but we weren't patent lawyers. So we go, we get up to trial. <clears throat> I'm there. I'm scared to death. I'm telling my client, listen, we're going to lose. We're never going to win. We're going to, we're going to get our ass kicked. And he's like, we'll go try to settle. I'm like, okay. So I go to this attorney named Ed Schwartz. He's out of Pasadena, but he's from Boston originally. So he's got this thick uh, Boston accent. I'm like, hey, uh, we're willing to settle for 50000 What wh- What do you think? And he's like, go fuck yourself. Is that, is that your counter? Is that your counter offer for me to go fuck myself? <laughs> so go back to my client. He's like, what'd they say? And I said, well, the, uh, the counter was to go fuck ourselves. Because what does that mean? I'm like, well, I, I, we're going to have to do this trial. That's that's what it means. But well, we do the trial. We're going through the trial. And they had sued my guy, countersued my guy for defamation, for some emails that had or whatever post that he was doing. And I see I, the, the defense was so nice. They agreed to make the evidence binders. This is a lesson I learned really early in my career. Don't, this is why you always make your evidence binders. They were very kind to do this. So when it came to the emails... I was questioning my client. I had my original, what it should be. And I, I'm asking him to look at exhibits. And he's like, I don't see what you're talking about. I go up. These assholes had like literally removed portions of emails and strung them together to make it look like it's something it wasn't. So I don't even know what a sidebar is, but I've seen it like other attorneys do it. So I'm like, and in federal court, you know, I was a state court kid. This federal court, it's like big. They're like sitting like 47 feet above you, the judges and looking down. And I'm like, your honor, can we have a sidebar? We go over and the judge, you know, we're behind the wall. And the judge is like, I go, your honor, they like deleted the evidence. I, here's the original email. I'm showing him. He goes, we're going to take a recess and you guys figure this out. I'm like, okay. And this was the greatest thing is I'm sitting at council table and like the judge is clearly very angry at this older defense attorney. And I'm this brand new little puppy lawyer that's being taken advantage of. And the judge could see this all happening, right? I was naive. I didn't appreciate it. But <clears throat> Ed Schwartz looks at me. He says, uh, well, we'll just go ahead and use your version. I'm like, go fuck yourself. And he's like, you're not going to work with me. I'm like, get the judge. I'm not, I don't know what's going on, but that can't be okay. Like, I, I know that's got to break some rule. I don't know what the rules are. That's got to break one of them. And so the judge comes out and he's like, your honor, he, Mr. Claggett's not willing to work with me to correct this. And he goes, and I wouldn't either. All of those documents are out. Your cross claim is dismissed. And you, sir, one, one more mistake away from being kicked out of this court. I was like, and then the jury came back and gave us like 1.3 million bucks. That is awesome. Ended up settling. I think my client still gets gets royalties to this day. Wow. That's fantastic. So that started your career as a patent lawyer, I'm assuming. I've never done one since. 
I also, you can't see it. I have a nice diploma from the United States tax court behind me that I've never been into that court either because my boss decided to take a tax matter. And that's what I was like, I got to get out of here. Like I'm going to like completely malpractice something at some point. But he, he did uh, one of the most famous criminal defense trials in the history of our state where uh, I did that right. can't remember which order it was. They were that, that patent trial and this criminal defense trial were back to back. And uh, it was so cool because uh, Alan Dershowitz had done the appeal. Dick DeGuerin was originally on the case. Tony Sarah, this legendary attorney out of San Francisco, uh, was on the case. And it was just such an amazing experience to work with attorneys of that caliber as a young lawyer. Um, but then I decided to start my own firm. I just, I, I was, after all that, I made $55,000, you know? And I'm like, well, I think I can make 60 if I go out on my own. And that's like a pretty legit in, like raise. So in January 2005, I started Claggett. And at the time, it was at Sean K. Claggett and Associates. I, I had no associates, but it sounded good. <laughs> so so when you started it, uh, what was your support staff? Did you have anybody other than Sean K. Claggett in the building? I did. I had a paralegal who was 20 years old and had just finished paralegal school. So between the two of us, we knew absolutely nothing. And then what which was great. And she was with me. At What's that? that? You decide you wanted uh, you were going to focus on you know plaintiff trial law and litigation, or was it a open door? Take what you can get. It was it was definitely um, take whatever I could. I did a lot of real estate litigation starting out. I just wanted to make money. I was kind of a hustler. You know, my view. I, I didn't really. I had no desire at that point. Nor. I, to be a great trial lawyer, it wasn't like even on my radar. I enjoyed being in court, but it wasn't, I didn't care. It just wasn't something that I cared about. And so uh, I kind of just got distracted. So I had a lawsuit um, that went on from like 05 till February of 09 and damn near bankrupted my firm. But I got a $19 million judgment on that one. It, it was a bench trial, but it bankrupted me. My client stopped paying his bills, but I got a Denny's restaurant out of it. And so I was focused on getting the Denny's restaurant uh, in shape because it was in bad shape. And then I got distracted again and started a company called World Series of Fighting. I was the CEO of World Series of Fighting, which is now the Professional Fighter League on ESPN. Um, and for about three years from 09 to 11, I, I didn't really practice law all at all. I was just doing different business things. And I didn't really want to, I was kind of disillusioned with the practice of law, but my wife then, and I, my partner, Will Sykes was with me during that whole time. And if it wasn't for him, the firm would have, would not exist today. I mean, he literally kept the firm surviving while I was busy trying to be a media mogul and restaurant guy. So, but yeah, Will, Will kept it going. And in 2011, my wife, looked at me, she goes, can you just give me three years? Try for three years to be the best trial lawyer you can be. I really think you've got some talent. Because I went back in law school, I did moot court and I won this moot court competition at school and it was kind of a big deal. And my wife remembers that, she goes, you, you've lost your focus, just give me three years. My wife and I have been together since we were 16. So we're, we're we, she knows me. And I said, all right, I promise, I'll give you three years. And I remember the, I went out and saw Dorothy Clay Sims speak, and it just blew my mind. 
because all the CLEs I'd gone to had been like the bare minimum because that's how I was taught by my boss. Just go through the motion, get your 12 CLEs, and be done with it. Um, it was uh, when I went to that thing with Dorothy and Dorothy said, look, there's two books you got to read, Rules of the Road and The Reptile. And I read those books and it, they were just mind blowing books for me at the time. And I, I, for the next three years, that's all I did was go to every conference I could, read every book I could. And then I'm like, I think I can do these trials. I think I've, I know enough. And then I started doing trials probably in maybe like 2012, 2013, something like that. Yeah, a lot of people don't know this about me though, but I, I did a trial in 2005, a little rear end wreck where I lost. First injury case where my client got rear ended. Can you imagine that? But so I got scared of doing PI cases, so I just stopped. Did you lose on causation? Did you lose on causation or on ne on the finding of negligence? Well, they they stipulated that they rear ended me, and then uh, they gave me no money though, and I was like, I I was so unprepared. I, I didn't, you know, it's funny because you don't even know you're not prepared because you don't know what you don't know. Right. But I was wholly unprepared to do that trial. Did you retry that case, or did, or was that the end of it? That was the end of it, and and I like, well, I don't think your client was hurt, so. You get no money. I'm like, but 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 my client went to the doctor, and the doctor said she was hurt. I don't understand how this could happen. Seven years, Rahul. I didn't do a personal injury trial for seven years after that, out of fear, just complete paralysis. And then the next, the the, the first trial I did, doing all those courses, like, and I started doing focus groups, and I, I got really comfortable. Like, I made myself do focus groups every Friday. I called it Focus Group Friday, and I said I'm going to get comfortable talking, really comfortable. And then I started realizing. When you say focus group, how was your focus group structured when you started the focus group Fridays? It, I would literally just ha have people come in to the office. And my office was small at the time. So I'd have them, like, we'd make a circle and I would just talk to them. Like, here, let's talk about some stuff. And I started figuring things out. And the more that I did that, the more I was like, I'm ready. I'm ready to go into court. I'm ready to pick a jury. And then I couldn't, the, the first trial I did after that was like the most insane, hardest trial. I would never, I would never do the trial, that trial today. I don't think, maybe I would, but the case I did was in Elko, Nevada, super conservative uh, jurisdiction. My lady was eating a hamburger on her cell phone and didn't look left before entering a unprotected crosswalk so that the downtown area, the traffic had the right of way and you had to look, there was a crosswalk, but you had to look, right? She gets pelted by this flower delivery truck. And I'm like, all right, this attorney in Elko had asked me to do it. I'd met her at teaching out in Atlanta. And she was like, hey, come do this with me. I'm like, all right. And Sam Harding and I went out there and tried the case and uh, we did a focus group leading up to it. And I'm like, it is harder than that. Like as bad as that sounds, Rahul, my lady's laying on the ground. Imagine her laying on the ground. And she's like, I'm so sorry. It's all my fault. It's all my fault. I'm so sorry. So I did a focus group up in Elko. And I'm like, hey, why would somebody say that? Why would somebody, like, it's such a weird thing to say, right? I mean, nobody really gives it. I mean, your loved ones don't care whose fault it is. They care that you got hurt. It doesn't really matter whose fault it is. Uh, but they said that she felt guilty, that she's a burden on her family. And they also told me is they got a real problem in Elko and people need to slow down while they drive through town because there's so many pedestrians and people go flying through there and people get hurt all the time. So that became the little motto for the trial was you got to slow down while you go through town. And I told the jury, I go, look, your verdict can not only 
let the defendant know that they got to slow down while they go through town. It can also take away the plaintiff's guilt. You can do that for her with a verdict. And they did. They came back and gave a verdict. And after that, I was like, I am sold. I am all in on this whole trial thing because that was amazing. And the jury had one question in that case uh, where, they, where they were deliberating. If we want the plaintiff to win, can we blame her more than 50%? And I, t- I told the defense attorney, I'm like, you write that answer. If you want to send something back to him, write it. And she did. She goes, no, if you want the plaintiff to win, she can't be more than 50%. 51-49 liability split. And then I had the juice and became addicted to trial. So that's the that's how that all happened. So that journey you describe where you start out doing this kind of haphazardly, winging it a little bit, um, trying to figure it out on your own, having some struggles, and then at some point getting into the um, getting into learning, trying to learn as much as you can about how to do the craft of trying cases and reading all the the books and attending seminars. What do you think the biggest, what I was going to say is I think a lot of us have had that kind of a journey where we start out not knowing what we're doing, then figure it out, um, and then really get interested. That's why we have this podcast after all, getting interested in the craft, try to develop some mastery of it. What do you think the biggest and early insights were that you had where you realized, where that like light bulb went off perhaps even in that first seminar you went to where you realized well, there's something here beyond what you've known before? Well, with Dorothy Clay Sims, I mean, I had always been told, don't play with experts. You know, they know more than you. Stay away from them. They're dangerous. That's how you lose your case. I went to Dorothy Clay Sims' uh, seminar, and she's explaining how there's a systematic approach and you can like destroy these doctors and make it the best part of your case. And I'm like, whoa, what? And I bought her book and I read the whole darn thing, like every single question for every single expert. And I'm like, it just blew my mind. It blew my mind that there was a resource out there for that a, an attorney would care enough to put a book out that she could have kept to herself and just use for her own knowledge. But she put it out to help all of us. And I was like, this is crazy. And then, I mean, one of the but the great thing about learning is, okay, there's there that, that moment a long time ago. Well, about four years ago, I was at a CLE. Just There's probably like six or seven of us there, but it was about micro expressions on body language. So I was really trying to learn more about body, you know, the body movement when people are talking to you. And Rex Paris was there. I didn't know who Rex Paris was. I never heard of the guy. But he comes in, he looks like Santa Claus, and he talks about negative space cross-examining of experts and it was like and of any witness really and i just like i remember leaving there going this just changed my world and it's like those moments where even like yesterday i I was watching rahul and sonia uh talk and i was like one of their questions that they asked in their questionnaire was so much better than the way i asked that question in my questionnaire i was like dude this is like way better and I was like so excited because it's like that one thing, but I got that one really good thing. And I'm like, that was worth the three hours of like, how great is it? I spent three hours and got way better. And so, you know, even if it's incrementally better, when you start putting it all, layering it on top of each other, it's like, I'm getting better every day. And so, I mean, I, A, I'm a huge fan of Rahul's. I, I, he needs to be the big, the big smooth is what his nickname needs to be. The guy is so silky smooth in his, the, his, demeanor and his voice and everything he does. And he's such a kind person. I could never do what he does, but I can take things that he does and adapt them for my personality and make it work. And so that's what I, uh, 
constantly am trying to do even today. I mean, every day is just learn one thing each day. What do you think your personality is, Sean? Oh gosh, I I, I, I am a bit sarcastic um, in court. I'm just a con- I, honestly common sense. Real, you know, like when people say something stupid in trial, I'll literally look at the jury. I'm like, what? Are you serious? And then objection, argumentative judge, like ask a question. I'm like, I'm sorry. I just, are you serious that that's what you just said? <laughs> I mean, if you're gonna say something that stupid, I'm like, come on. I want you to really tell us again how stupid that answer was. You know. So I'll do things like that. And a lot of the the funny thing is a lot of the some of the the really really good defense attorneys I'll typically get along with. But these guys that I, I've noticed like there's like that combination of not really a good lawyer and very unethical. And those guys and myself don't get along well at all. And I will, uh, I was talking to Roger Dodd. He was came to my office and did an awesome seminar for our attorneys. Roger was like, no, nope, when they get me, it's going to be a hard day. And I'm like, that's what I say. You know, like, you got me. It's, I'm going to, it's, it's going to be a long, hard day for you, man. I'm sorry about it, but we're going to, we're going to have some issues now. I'm going to hold you to task because all the nonsense, that's why I love trial so much. All the nonsense that they do in discovery is like, out the window at trial. None of that stuff works at trial. It's like, no, now, now, now you're going to be held to task for that stupid shit that you thought was such a clever move in discovery. I'm going to make it hurt. And it just exposes the nonsense that they've been doing and you make them pay the price for what they're doing. That's what I love about it. Cause there's nowhere to run and hide. You're fully exposed in trial. So, so let's, Talk a little bit about um, something that both Ben and I are so interested in what you've done and continue to do, which is the utilization of, of big data in preparing for your, for your trials. And just as a primer, what, what the heck is big data? Why is it so special? And what do you do with it? So big data is it real, really all it is, is getting a bigger sampling size of focus groups. And you can do it by doing a whole lot of focus groups with like 10, 12 people, it takes too long and it's too costly. So there's a way to do it online and you can get a group of 500, a thousand people in the online communities. They're all over the place. And then you present materials to them, plaintiff and defense side, and they, they then will be asked a series of questions. And what's great about the big data is we can test different scenarios and get large samplings of each scenario to see which is the best way to present. Or for a lot of times when we've got it, the case pretty well dialed in towards the end, I want to know where's my sweet spot for the ask? How much can I ask for before I have a fall off on my win rate? So we want to see win rates. If you get a win rate of 70% or higher on these studies we do, we've never lost a case. There's been like 50 jury trials. Nobody's lost a case when their win rate on the big data is 70%. So for example, like, give me, can you give me an example of one of the cases you've worked yeah. out and how you used the big data? Yeah. So the last case I just did, the uh, Republic Service case, uh, we did the big data and I wanted to know, there was a couple things I really wanted to know. One is what what's driving the value? Because there was a lot, there was, we had like three really good angles that we could have approached the trial with, like with the the major theme. I had it narrowed down to the right two as it turned out. Amazing verdict, but just tell everybody, it's such an amazing verdict. Um, But tell everybody just a little bit about the facts of the case. So, so we know the context of the big data utilization. Okay. 
So we had an 11 year old girl that was walking home from school, lots of kids in the area. She comes up to an intersection, her friend hits the walk button. Just as the walk symbol turns on, she enters the intersection. At the same time, her public service truck makes a right-hand turn and the back wheels catch her, run her over and kill her. Um, it was hard because there was an eyewitness behind the Republic service truck who said that it was the girl's fault. She walked into the truck. She wasn't paying attention. She was distracted. The driver, the passenger ultimately said it was her fault. She was distracted. And then the police blamed our girl and cited the little girl. He didn't really cite her because she was dead, but his conclusion was it was her fault. So we had to overcome those hurdles of liability, which once we got into discovery, we got their policies and procedures and everything. Not, I wasn't that worried. Uh, discrediting a police officer was a lot of fun on the stand, um, which had to be done because we knew from our focus groups, if the jury believed that uh, police officer who was going to come in and do everything he could to hurt the family, we knew that. Uh, my family was Hispanic. Uh, mom didn't speak English. And it felt very obvious to me what was going on. And he did. He came in and did everything he could to try to make sure we didn't get a verdict. But when I was done with him, everybody on the jury knew the guy was a big fat liar. So that was kind of the, 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 the case. I wanted to test, you know, so in our big data, we can figure out what, what the, now appreciate, we're just taking random sampling of people, right? We're, we're not doing jury selection. We're not taking out the bad ones. This is like first 10 that sit down. Statistically, if you're at 70%, seven out of 10 are going to be on your side in Nevada. I need six out of eight. So we're going to win that case every single time, just out of a random, I don't need to do any jury selection, sit them down, I'll win. And how do you make sure that the case you're presenting is an accurate, um, representation of what the actual jury is going to hear. I'm assuming you're, you're really putting in all the defense positions as aggressively as, as you need to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we, we put in, uh, in Nevada, we get expert reports. And when you do these studies and you, you can do early studies, which we do to tease out certain issues, but these big ones at the end where we're getting value, everything's done. Right. And it's not like a criminal case. Like you, we really do know what's going to happen at trial. It's not, I, mean, I don't know about you guys, but how many times you've been like, I can't believe the defense did that at trial. I mean, it doesn't really happen that much once you, you know, you're an experienced trial lawyer and you have the expert reports, you have the depositions, you kind of just know what's going to happen. So we we are very fair. And look, I, I, I'll give you an example where the big data doesn't work. We're doing a consult job right now. And this firm sends us plaintiff's position, five, five or 6,000 words, the defense position, 500 words. We're like, dude, I mean, you can't do that. Like you were, and it's natural, right? Because we work so hard. We put so much in these cases. We want to win, but it doesn't matter if you win a focus group, you'd rather lose the focus group and win the trial. So we had to work with those folks to make sure it's a fair approach. And so, uh, John Campbell, who's, uh, does all the consulting on the big data with me. He's the, John Campbell the one who actually does the big data studies with empirical jury. He's phenomenal. Um, John and I do a lot of consulting around the country together. And so I'll do the live focus group. And we want to still on the back end test the group dynamic of what big data is telling us. And you can only do that through a live focus group. But um, once you get the good, you know, good data in gets good data out. Bad data in is going to give you unreliable data out, just basic common sense. So once we get the, the 
presentations put together and edited and revised and make sure that they're good, we then do the study. And we test at the end of the study too to see who the participants believe uh, is paying for the study. And we, I mean, it's always very cool because there's like six options and it's everybody gets about 15% typically because nobody knows, just guess. Uh, so once we have the big data, the information we get back out, for me, pre-trial, right before trial, I want to know what should I ask for? Because that's always, I mean, for me, it's always been like, I don't know. What do you think? 40 million? Does that sound like a good number? It sounds kind of sounds good. I mean, I don't know. But what we never knew before is that your ask absolutely impacts your win rate. So in the Espana case, the Republic Service case, if I would have asked for $20 million, my win rate was at 69%, just under where I need it to be. But if I asked for $65 million, my win rate jumped to 77%. Why is that? Nothing different. Um, there's probably, it's probably multifactorial, honestly, but there was something about asking for more that convinced people that it was a more worthy case. And the crazy thing is our worst day at trial when I asked for 65 was going to be 11 million. My best day when asking for 20 was 12.9 million. Think about that mistake. Because what's interesting is my data said I was going to get 37.99 million. I got 38.75. So when you can be within 10%, our goal is to be within 10% of the actual verdict. That's an accurate, very accurate predictor. I mean, we I think we would all be happy if we could predict verdicts within 10%, right? So that's what we've done. And I did another. It's, it's we so did fascinating because the conventional wisdom for a long time was that if you overreach, quote unquote, that you're going to drive down your win rate. But what you're saying is if you project confidence in your case or value by asking for a bigger number, that can, in some circumstances, drive your win rate up. Yeah, it, it, it can. And I just settled a case uh, where the opposite was true, though where we asked for too much, we fell off a cliff. I mean, it dropped the win rate. I think we got to like, it was a smaller case. If we got, if we asked for like $6 million versus 2 million, the win rate went from like 70% down to like 55. I mean, that's where, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't do that because now you may lose the whole case. The win rate means like out of a hundred people, 55 are going to say you win. Well, that if you get a strong person on the defense, you're probably going to lose that case at trial. Um, what happens when you do a so, case and you're moving towards the end and you're closing in on your trial date and your win rate is lower than you'd hope? Like, let's say it's uh, 49% or 55% or something. Are you then restructuring your presentation and and, focus, and um, testing it again? Or how, how do you... Because the defense is going to argue what they're going to argue. You can't change that part of it, right? Yeah. I mean, usually we, we can see from the initial study where the issues are, and you can try to get around them and re redo it and see if you can get the win rate up. But if you're at 49% and you've presented just the facts, this is very fact-specific, right? I mean, 
much more so than we ever believed. Like, I was always like, oh, you know, <clears throat> that lawyer got that verdict because that lawyer's great. No, that lawyer got that verdict because they presented the facts that they had. It, it, it may be in a certain way, um, but they had the facts. I mean, I don't see any huge verdict where I'm like, that was an unworthy case. You see these huge verdicts, and it's like somebody's life was ruined. Terribly bad. And uh, so, but yeah, I mean, I. Um, so if the, if the focus group, I mean, the big data comes back at 49, you're settling that case, I'm assuming, right? All day, <laughs> if you can. I mean, you don't want it, to, it's bad for your client. I mean, in Nevada, especially, we, we have offers of judgment. If the defense has made an offer of judgment, you don't beat it. They'll go get a, especially just to make the lawyer's life miserable, they will go and try to collect against the client, the attorney's fees. And they could ruin your client's financial life. So, I mean, you, you have to make, be certain you're making the right decision. But in the Espanya case, the beautiful thing is I had my data and so they had offered me a million top offer was 250,000 for that was the top offer until like two weeks before trial. And then they went to a million after jury selection. They went to 2.2 after my opening statement, they went to 10 million at the close of my evidence. They went to 15 million. Well, I'm having to advise the client the whole time what to do. Do you take the money? Do you say no? Because I had my data, I was like, listen, if they don't offer 30 million, you shouldn't say yes. And she's like, I trust you. And, you know, the data was just, it just gave us that much confidence. And at a bare minimum, even if the data had been wrong, it's, I don't worry about malpractice or anything like that because I did what I was supposed to do. I put 500 people through a study to predict the outcome. And, but we, we do now know human behavior is very predictable, right? Big data has been used for a long time. You know, I was just reading an article the other day that said the most valuable commodity in the world is data. It's more valuable than oil, gold combined. Data is the most valuable commodity. And it's because human behavior is so predictable. Those who have the data win the game, whether it be in the, in the marketplace, whether it be in the courtroom, Whoever has the data is going to win. And so. So just out of curiosity, was great with, I, I don't even yeah, know if it's the right question to ask, but um, if the data, if, if the outcomes are fact driven and the data is available, doesn't the defense analyze it the same way as, as you're now analyzing it and everybody knows what the outcome of the case is going to be or. It's actually kind of exciting. I've been thinking about this because this isn't a secret and I'm not scared to share this with the defense, right? Um, they're, they're, they're already starting to figure this out, right? The defense bar. The way that the, the defense bar has always done their focus groups, we know it's these horrifically expensive and unbelievably unreliable and inaccurate focus groups that they run where they'll do one day and there'll be 40 people in and they'll have somebody play the plaintiff lawyer and somebody play the defense lawyer and those variables and just that those two things can skew the total outcome of the study. And you don't have enough data points to have any clue. Like if you really want to have like validity in that process, you would have four different people play the plaintiff lawyer and then have the plaintiff and defense lawyer switch roles. And then to see if the data comes back same every time, 
But the reason why they don't do that is because it's $75,000 per study. So they're not going to spend three or $400,000 to figure that out. With big data, they can figure this out for like $30,000, dollars $50,000 and have 500 to 1,000 people go through a study. But once the defense figures this out, it's going to be interesting because the big data is going to be the same, assuming the person who's running it for the defense puts a fair presentation for both sides. Um, if they do that, then yeah, the data is going to be the same. So the carrier is going to look and there's like, I could show you guys a study that I've done, but basically you have like the lower 25%, the upper 25%, the median and the mean. And the verdicts will almost always end up between the median and the mean in that range within 10%. Now we did have Eric Fong, who we, we uh, did a lot of consulting with. And our big data told him to ask for 91 million, so he did. And our predictive analytics were that he'd get about 40. Well, he got all 91 million. So unfortunately, that trial was not on CV, so we can't study what happened. But it would be fascinating to have been able to watch what happened to understand, okay, how did how did he break the model? You know, in Eric's approach, Eric is, you know, Rahul, do you know Eric? I know. I mean, yeah, that was one of his earlier trials, right? Was that his first time first chairing a trial or what was it? No, I, no, no. Eric's an experienced criminal defense guy. I don't know how many civil trials he's done. I, I know he's pretty experienced, but uh, that was that trial was just earlier, like a few months ago. So, uh and then we did the same with Christian Morris, where we did her consulted on her case, their peanut allergy case, um, and we were within 10% of the outcome on that case, predictive. And it's it's so neat because it's just like, I'm so excited because I'm totally geeky about juries and their behavior. <clears throat> and now I really believe that we can answer the question, like what's the most likely outcome? But when the defense realizes it, the malpractice is going to happen when you don't know the value of the case. And they offer, they've done a big data study and they know their real exposure is 15 million. That's the most, that's a very likely outcome for them. And that's a middle of the road outcome. That's not the plaintiff lawyer beating, getting the 20, getting up to the 25th percentile. Right. And then the, they make an offer that is below like, for three million, and the lawyer takes it, and it's like, oh my god, what have you done? And so you have to know. I mean, one of the things that we've said for a long time in my office is, we only get so many cases; we have to make the most of each of them. How, how do you respond? I, I think this is fantastic. I'm so excited about it because one of the things that it allows you to do, like you did in your recent cases, to explain, to present it all to your client and say give a rationale for why you're going to walk away from the 10 or $15 million offer and go for the $30 million verdict. But actually what was your verdict in that case? It was like 47 million or something, right? No, it was 38.75. You told us that. But I guess one question is there's a difference between uh, perhaps between what the predictable value of the case is and what the client needs to live their life and be financially secure and comfortable, right? 
So if you get oh, if you yeah. get beyond a certain number, although it would be nice to get more, um, what what's the discussion like with the client that says even if there's only thirty percent chance that um, you know you may lose or get a, a much lower number, that it makes sense to turn down enough enough money that can dramatically change their life and make them secure for the rest of their life to, to potentially get that higher number. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously that's a discussion you have to have with every client. That's why a lot of our trials don't go right. Eventually the number gets so high that the offer meets the needs of the client and the, why the client's not willing to take the risk, which is understandable. In this particular case, they had litigated this case for years saying that our girl committed suicide and put the mom through that. And then at me an early mediation before our firm was involved, the mediator, they had offered $250,000. The mediator told her, that's a lot of money for people like you. And the mom had this resolve. She's like, no, people like me are good people. And I lost my daughter and she didn't kill herself. And so it was more about vindicating her daughter's on and honoring her memory to to let everybody know that she didn't kill herself she didn't and she, her life has value and the mom was just I, I got really 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 close to this family we didn't speak the same language you know so either my paralegal or her daughter were always her other daughter were with us all the time i'm so close to her my paralegal who did the case just got married and she was at the wedding the client was there and, and we just have just they're just a beautiful family it reminds me a lot when i was growing up with my wife and her family you know they they my wife is from the philippines and they they didn't have any money you go in that household and it's a happy house you know and lots of people all the time lots of good food lots of cooking and i go to their house it's the same thing you know and i'm like this is it was just i don't know it was just a an amazing family, but yeah, you got to have the conversation. And um, certainly uh, I think it was more important for my client to get a verdict and let the world know. Cause it, it was really a mean fucking awful thing for them to do to say that her daughter killed herself. It was just so awful, so awful. Did that come out at trial? No, because they had uh moved away from that it changed their theory changed their theory and i i was toying with it but this attorney was such a knucklehead that i'm like i don't want any issues on appeal i don't want to even risk that it wasn't worth doing we were so far ahead uh so i just i left it out because it you know in my focus groups i probably could have it wasn't going to change the ultimate number, I don't think. I think it would have the number would have been roughly the same. On punitives, it could have certainly caused those to get out of hand. We didn't get punitives, so um, that issues. We've got a motion for new trial on that that I think will be granted. So hopefully, the case isn't over. <laughs> so I'm curious what since you said that after. Uh doing the big data studies, the results tend to be driven by the facts. What, what, uh, how much influence do you think the lawyering in the courtroom 
has on the ultimate outcome? And where can the lawyers still make an impact or a difference in your view? Well, I, I think the lawyer is still hugely important because the facts still have to be given to the jury. And unprepared lawyers, lawyers that don't spend the time, I mean, how many times have you seen it where like really important facts don't get into evidence? Like the lawyer doesn't, they forget to call a witness, they forget to introduce a piece of a document or whatever it is. So there's still that, like when you're doing the study, it's like, oh, here's all the evidence. And like, it's all coming in. You got to make sure you get it in. Um, I want to believe, I want to believe that it, 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 it certainly makes a huge difference, the lawyer. Um, and I think it does because the big data is taking a random sample. But like in jury selection, if you can take those bad jurors out and replace them with favorable jurors, now you're not at a 70% win rate, maybe you're at a 95. And a lesser attorney may let bad people on. And instead of being the seven out of 10, you can literally drop that to a five out of 10. So clearly you can screw it up, you know, by not doing your job in jury selection. <clears throat> so yeah, I, I think the lawyer matters. And a lot of times we're doing the big data studies. The lawyers are doing these trials are competent lawyers because I haven't met many lawyers who are doing big data who aren't like fully all in on the case because it's like just the preparation to do a big data study. It requires you to really understand your case um, from both sides. Um, you have to know how you're going to lose. I think that was part of your uh, presentation yesterday, Rahul. You know, you got to know your enemy. And you got to know how you can lose the case. And when you understand how you can lose, you can make sure you don't. But if you don't know how you're going to lose, and a lesser attorney wouldn't know. I mean, you don't know what you don't know. And I see that a lot. I'm sure Rahul and Ben, I'm sure you guys both do. When you get brought into cases, you're like, wow this was really not worked up very well. So we're, we, we come in and we try to breathe life back into dead cases. So, so I think it does matter. I mean, a lot of attorneys, you know, I, I just was involved in a case where two, two different cases, actually product defect cases, both times the lawyers had had spoilation issues and they'd not filed spoilation motions and they didn't have the products. Like you guys realize this is like the, the, the end of the case. You don't win. Like that fact's not coming in at trial. You don't have the product. Both cases resolved because we filed this, we got involved, filed the spoilation motions and got real aggressive with people. But those cases had to settle because of <clears throat> the cases don't get worked up the right way. There's only, you know, look, I, I don't care. The best lawyers on the planet can only do so much with limited facts. I was interested in something you mentioned earlier about trying to evaluate people based on their expressions. You described it as micro expressions, and that's something that's always interested me. I know Malcolm Gladwell writes about it in one of his books, and there's people that profess to have expertise in that. Have you uh, have you utilized that at all in uh, jury selection, or you have any strategies relating to that? that I. I after doing the class and trying really, really hard to be proficient at it, I suck. I am the world's worst. Uh, I, I, can't, I don't pick up on it. I'm just like, I'm looking at, you have to be so focused in on like 
the eyes and the mouth and the like movements. And I'm, I, I just have proven to myself they, after like two days of doing this, they're like, okay, I know what to look for. I'm going to, they would do these like live studies where they like have somebody that go in the back room and they either took the hundred dollars and said, I'm going to lie about having the hundred dollars or you get $50 and you can say you didn't take the hundred dollars. So you had to figure out whether they took the hundred dollars and are lying to you or they actually took the $50 and are telling the truth. Right. There's a lie and there's the truth. I got it wrong every time. I'm like, I am not good at this process. My paralegal at the time was phenomenal at it. She, she was picking up on her and she, this girl had picked a lot of juries with me. Uh, you know, she's moved on with her career at this point, but she was really talented. Uh, but yeah, it was fascinating. And I had, a. it was just a really cool thing to know. And at, at this conference, there's a, a company that we're, I'm going to be talking to that. They, they actually monitor that for you during your focus groups. They can monitor micro expressions. So I'm super jazzed to go use that because Rex Paris and his firm use this and they're like, it's really good. It really tells you where your case is emotionally strong or weak. And I'm like, all right, man. So I got to learn that. It's like, it, it, that'll be something I take out of this conference for sure. Yeah. It's really fascinating stuff. Oh, well, thanks so much for joining us, Sean. Really appreciate it. I know our listeners do too. Well, thanks for having me guys. It's a, uh, it's an honor to be with both you guys. I, I don't know Ben all that well. He's on the other side of the country, but I, I definitely know Rahul and uh, I'm really just thankful that you guys would want me to be on here. I'm thankful that Rahul, all the teaching you do so I can continually learn from you. Uh, you always have like certain, like I always pull at least one thing from you every time you present. So. Oh, thanks man. It's it, the feeling. Well, thanks John. I, I, I've heard a lot about you, particularly, uh, well, your most recent verdict is incredibly impressive and a bunch of the stuff you're doing is it's, it's making waves even all the way over here in Maine on the East coast. So I just want you to know that really appreciate your being on with us. Thank you. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E dot net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.